This is the fifth Sunday of Lent. On three of the four previous Sundays of Lent, we heard references in the first readings to the exodus of our Jewish ancestors from slavery in Egypt in the 13th century before Christ. That is the central experience for our Jewish ancestors of the reality of God's saving love. They are really in slavery in Egypt for generations. God really enters into that slavery, and God very clearly frees them from that slavery, saves them from that slavery. It's the central reference point for any faithful Jewish person 2,000 years ago or today of the reality of God's saving power. Given that truth, if you listen to today's first reading from the prophet Isaiah in the sixth century before Christ, it's a really shake you up passage. In that passage, God says through Isaiah to God's chosen people, remember that exodus, that freedom from slavery. Right now, don't remember it. Don't consider it. Not as in totally forget it. Obviously, if we were gonna forget it, Jesus wouldn't talk about it continually. The Passover wouldn't be the reality through which Jesus gives us the Eucharist. God explains through Isaiah why right now, don't think about that, don't consider it. God says, because I am doing something new. God is going to do something new that is much, much, much greater than that freedom from slavery in Egypt. And really interestingly to me, from the get-go in that passage, six centuries before Jesus, God says, do you not perceive it? I am doing something new, do you not perceive it? So this great thing that God does doesn't necessarily mean that people are going to perceive, that people are really gonna get what it is that God's doing. A Christian is a person who believes that what God was saying centuries before through Isaiah is about Jesus, about the eternal Son of God who becomes a human being, who comes to this fallen, sinful world, and he brings to this world ultimately the full power of God's salvation, not just being saved from slavery in Egypt, but being saved on this planet and eternally from everything that separates us from God. Jesus is what Isaiah is talking about, what God is pointing to in Isaiah. The something new that God is ultimately going to do for the world is bring eternal salvation through Jesus. In about 10 days, all of us are going to be invited to enter into the fullness of that reality. The Easter Triduum, which begins on Holy Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, opening into the Easter season, is God's invitation every year, not for us just to remember how Jesus brings salvation to this world, but to be drawn into it, hopefully to be transformed by that, to grow in that power of salvation. Some of you, for the first time, when you're baptized and you receive the other sacraments, the rest of us to be renewed. Many, many, many people in this community, including I know many of you, have really been preparing seriously during this season of Lent, either for the sacraments or for the grace of those holiest days. Day by day, we've been trying to turn away from sin 
and be more faithful, growing Christians to prepare for those graces. This is real, and this is serious. The closer we get to those holiest days, the more our faith tradition tries to remind us this is real and it's serious. You can see that reflected in this ancient tradition. This might be from as early as the ninth century of covering statues and crosses in worship spaces as we approach those holiest days. This is real and this is serious. And I always have the personal question, so it's quite important to planet Earth. My personal question that I always get with those coverings is, who's under there? Who's under those coverings? You know with the cross, obviously it's Jesus on the cross. You can look at the other coverings and say, who's under there? It's not about the statues, it's about us. We all have externals with which we present ourselves to the world, all of us. We live in an age because of social media that we dangerously sometimes present ourselves to the world in almost entirely false ways. The question as we approach that Easter Triduum from God is who's under there? Under all your appearances and my appearances, who are we really? What is the state of your soul as we approach those holy days? What is really the state of my soul? That question is entirely important if the grace of those days is going to unfold through us and in this world. So it's real and it's serious, and I encourage you to take that as a gift. The gospel passage we just heard, there are two big examples of sinners who have the opportunity to receive the gift of salvation through Jesus. In the gospel passage we just heard, John 8, Jesus is approaching his passion, death, and resurrection. He's getting much closer to it. Everybody other than Jesus in the passage is a sinner. Every single one of us is a sinner. So I encourage you to look at these sinners, the two big examples, and consider how do you relate to both of them. That should be a really helpful spiritual tool for being more honest of who is under there, who are you, what is the state of your soul right now? So. Example number one of sinners in that passage are certain religious leaders. So Jesus is in Jerusalem, he's in the temple area, he is encouraging people to come to him and to hear him preach and to witness the things that he does. Jesus is entering into people's lives, he's inviting them to accept a relationship with him, and he's increasingly pushing people to make the choice how will you respond to me, Jesus? The way that this first group of sinners, certain religious leaders in the passage, respond to Jesus is they bring him a sinful woman. This woman is gravely sinful. She has committed adultery. She's violated marriage in the sight of at least two witnesses. For real, she's done this. So what are, who are they externally? According to a part of the Old Testament law, a primitive law, this woman should be stoned to death. Jesus later blows open. That is not nearly the fullness of God's truth. But in their understanding of God's law, this woman should be stoned to death. 
Who they are externally is people who believe in God. They identify themselves as we honor God, we love God, we care about God's law, and we do God's law. We put it into practice. Who are they really? Underneath the externals, who are they? They are people who do not live God's law. If they believe it's God's law that this woman should be stoned to death for her having committed adultery, they would stone her to death. They don't need Jesus whatsoever to intervene in this. They say this is God's law. We are people who do God's law. They do not do God's law. There's no suggestion whatsoever in there that they're wondering, oh, really, should we put her to death? They only go to Jesus to try to get Jesus in trouble. They are people who say, we believe in God's law, we live God's law, they do not live God's law. Number two, they are people into whose lives Jesus has entered, Jesus has offered them a relationship with him, and their choice, their response, is they reject Jesus and they try to do him harm. The history is not clear on this. It may be that the Romans, who occupy Palestine at this time, have said that it's illegal to have people put to death for religious leader reasons. So if Jesus takes a side, they say to him, the law of Moses says she be, should be stoned to death, what do you say? Maybe they're hoping that if he picks one side or the other, he'll either get in trouble with the Romans or he'll get in trouble with Jewish authorities. It also could be that they just know there's a tension between justice and mercy. And they hope that if Jesus takes a side either on justice or on mercy, Jesus will get in trouble with one or another group of religious people. Whatever is going on, they're thinking about this. It's not an accident. They're plotting. They respond to Jesus's invitation to salvation by rejecting him and choosing to try to harm him. This is a very important reality. This is why Jesus is killed, because of these people. What they're trying to do is what ends up leading to his crucifixion. Number three, they are people who reject God's mercy. Whatever they have about stoning people to death, they have also heard about God's mercy in our Old Testament. Whatever they're thinking about stoning a person to death, they have heard from Jesus about God's mercy. Whatever issues they have with Jesus, it does not add up to trying to get Jesus in trouble. They are people who reject God's mercy. And finally, very importantly, number four, Jesus still offers them the possibility of conversion. Jesus totally loves these people. Jesus is going to give his life for these people, these horrible people who want to do him harm. So Jesus takes time. He doesn't just turn away from them. There's the detail of Jesus stops and he spends time doing something on the ground. He gives them time to think. He then speaks to them, let the one among you who doesn't have sin be the first to throw a stone at her. That's not challenging them in a negative way. It's challenging them in a positive way, 
to think about what are they doing. If you're sinless, then take the next step. He then, once again, does the time writing on the sand. The time is for them. It's not about what he's writing. It's for them, for them to hopefully change, to convert. They take the time, and then one by one, they walk away. Not as a group, one by one. Each one chooses freely, never to ask a question, never to argue with Jesus, never to say, I disagree with that, never to say, what are you talking about? They make the choice to turn away and leave Jesus. Given the opportunity of conversion, they reject conversion. There is no sense in there that those people walk away, oh yeah, now we get it. Absolutely not. There is no sense in there that they're chastised by Jesus, that they're rethinking what's going on. No suggestion whatsoever. Those people have the opportunity to convert, and all evidence in that scripture is they reject it. See, I am sending, I am doing something new. Do you perceive it? The answer from them is no. God sends them salvation, not as an idea, his son. Do you perceive it? No. Example number two in that passage, example of a sinner number two is the woman who has committed adultery. Please be sure you get this. She has committed adultery. If you don't get this, you won't get the passage. Do not water it down. Do not feel sympathetic for her adultery. Adultery is a grave sin. If we don't get this around here at some point, I don't know what. Too many of us in this community commit adultery. Too many of us in this community are the victims of adultery. Get this. Adultery is a grave sin. It's a mortal sin. When I commit adultery knowingly, freely, I choose spiritual death. I can cut myself off from God now. I can cut myself off from God eternally. It's the whole point of this passage. She didn't tell a lie. She committed adultery. Two people have witnessed it. She has chosen spiritual death. That's who she is externally, and that's also who she is internally at the beginning of the passage. Quite different from those religious leaders, she changes. Who is she underneath all of this? She is a woman who accepts God's law. She does not say, I'm innocent. She does not say, adultery doesn't matter. She does not say, you know, everyone's doing it. She doesn't say anything. She accepts God's law. She is guilty of adultery, and she deserves spiritual death. Number two, she is a woman who, when she encounters Jesus and his invitation to salvation, this is the key thing. If I could make the lights flash right now and sirens go off, this is when it would be. When she realizes that Jesus does not want her to die and that he removes from her the threat of death, she remains with Jesus. She accepts him. 
She is going to die for her adultery. Jesus enters in and makes it clear he does not want her to die, and he removes from her life that threat of death. She gets it, she accepts him, and she remains with him. Completely different than those religious leaders. Number three, she accepts the mercy of God. Completely different than the religious leaders. How do I know this? Because Jesus says to her, has nobody condemned you? She says, no one. And he says, then I do not condemn you. She accepts. He would not say, I don't condemn you unless she accepted the mercy. Do you get this? If she were just a bump on a log, he wouldn't say, then I don't condemn you. She deserves condemnation spiritually. She has accepted God's mercy through Jesus, and he affirms that. Number four, completely different than those religious leaders, she accepts Jesus's invitation to conversion. The story doesn't just end with, I don't condemn you. The passage ends with, go and stop sinning. And presumably, only presumably, she does. If she didn't, that passage would not be recorded. If she didn't, the scripture writer would make a very different point about this woman. She accepts Jesus's forgiveness and she accepts his direct command, stop this sinning, and she moves on with her life. That's conversion. A sinner who repents, a sinner who receives God's mercy and Jesus's forgiveness and his command to go live your life and stop this sinning. She converts. See, I am doing something new. Do you perceive it? Yes, she perceives it. She gets it. They don't, she does. What's underneath what we just discussed about them? What's underneath with her? What we just discussed about her? How do you relate to those religious leaders? If you say, I don't, then you clearly have not been living Lent. How do you relate to that woman? In every way you do, blessed are you. The passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus are approaching for all those sinners. When it comes very soon, those religious leaders are either going to be far away from Jesus or they're going to be part of killing him. When the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus comes, that woman, it seems to me, is the kind of person who's quite likely to be at the foot of the cross of Jesus with other women. I hope to see you there. Thank you for listening. To learn more and to get involved, go to stpatrickparish.com.